0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is Dr. Mark Shapiro. I'm very excited to have as my guest today two gentlemen from the History of Medicine Division of the uh, National Library of Medicine. Uh, in Bethesda, joining me today is uh, Jeffrey Resnick, who is the chief of the History of Medicine Division, and also Ken Coyle, who is the deputy chief of the History of Medicine Division. And what brought them here is uh, an abiding interest of mine. And uh, in mid-June, I got my copy of the New England Journal of Medicine, and you know, I know a lot of my listeners may not be familiar with that title. If you're not in medicine, but this is the seminal journal of medicine. This is the one where the key articles, the most important research, the most relevant and pertinent opinions comes. Out, and it's consumed by people all over the world. The lead article in the June eighteenth article in the June eighteenth issue was "History of Medicine: Combat and the Medical Mindset: The Enduring Effect of Civil War Medical Innovation." my friends immediately knew that I was going to lose it, uh, because the civil war has been an abiding interest of mine. I'm a historian by training from school. Uh, it's still something that I'm interested in. So I had to immediately invite, uh, the two co co-authors of that article to come and join me. So gentlemen, welcome. And thank you so much for coming on explore the space.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks Mark.
0: So Jeff, let's start with you. This was an article. It's in the perspective section of the journal. Um, give me a sense of the genesis of an article like this. Obviously we're wrapping up the 150th anniversary of the end of the civil war this year. So it's certainly something that's sort of been in the, in the zeitgeist, it's been in the popular press. People have been talking about it. Obviously, more recently, there's been a lot of discussion around the Confederate flag. That, of course, was subsequent to your article coming out. That being said, what was sort of the genesis of this article? What prompted you guys to sit down and say, you know what, this is relevant. This is pertinent. Let's get this article written, and let's get it to the New England Journal.
2: Well, the credit here is due to the uh, editor of the Perspectives column, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, or I should say the editorial board likely, they identified an opportunity to recognize the the timeliness of the 150th anniversary through a historical uh, perspective piece. So uh, we were approached by uh, the editor uh, and asked if we would um, author a piece along these general lines, uh, reflecting on the legacy of the war from a medical perspective. Um, my colleague Ken and I, we work closely on a number of projects, including uh, historical research and writing, and um, uh, we talked about this as an opportunity together to uh, kind of align our, our thinking, our perspectives, not only on history, but on the collections that uh, we, over, we oversee here at the National Library of Medicine. And... Uh, perspective that we bring on to other resources that are held by other cultural institutions, particularly the National Museum of Health and Medicine, where I worked for a few years as a curator. So it was a kind of a perfect storm, if you will, of opportunity, of um, expertise and, and enthusiasm on both our parts to kind of pull this together in, I think, what we would argue is a unique way because of uh, uh, the, the resources, the, the story we tell, uh, the various small chapters of it, the resources we draw upon, and the significance of the institution where we currently work um, having its roots in uh, the 19th century, and the National Museum of Health and Medicine, which we discussed in the article, having its roots in the 19th century. And these institutions, the, the predecessor uh, institutions of our library and the museum, Uh, were kind of sister institutions uh, many, many uh, decades ago. So we we kind of allude to that as well. So it's a combination of things, really, and we're really fortunate to have written a piece together.
0: It's just endlessly fascinating how these – all of these different things, you, you feel like they'd be moving sort of in parallel, but they're all so closely interrelated. You know, when I read the article and, and as you mentioned, the, the connective tissue that puts the, the museums and, and, and our career trajectories together in the 21st century, it all comes back to these sort of seminal moments in our history. And that's sort of why I wanted to dive into this and why I think this article is so relevant. We can draw really important things because we are indelibly connected to this, this sort of material. Ken, give me a sense. First off, of at the outbreak of the war, 1861, what did health care in the United States look like? If you were someone who your your belly started to hurt or you started having chest pain or you got a skin infection, what did what did your health care worldview sort of look like in the United States, 1861, before the outbreak of the war?
1: I think the, the key thing about healthcare, care, uh, you know, antebellum health care was – Diversity, really. There was a wide, wide range of uh, types and qualities of healthcare available. So you had, uh, of course, your your allopathic doctors, uh, physicians who had gone to what we would consider a a regular traditional medical school. Uh, Some had, you know, the 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 best had trained in Europe, had traveled, had uh, more extensive. training in, in, medical doctrine, but there were also, uh, hydropaths, people who practiced various water therapies. There were Thompsonians, there were all kinds of homeopathic doctors. And so your chances of getting an actual medically trained physician were about 50, 50 mm-hmm. compared to, you know, getting a, a, a school trained medical, uh, professional versus somebody who was you know, perhaps school trained in some homeopathy, or perhaps you know, in some cases, kind of making it up as they go. Uh, <laughs> right. And then, and then, in the in the middle of of the the spectrum, you have your apprentice trained physicians. So there were a, a lot, especially in the smaller towns. If you get away from Philadelphia, you get away from the bigger cities, you'll find that the majority of physicians had never gone to medical school at all. They got their schooling from a more experienced physician. They, they served a, an apprenticeship maybe a couple of years. And when that, that senior physician felt that uh, their, their protege was ready, they would kind of sign them off and say, okay, you're, you're ready to practice medicine. And So those were the folks who were out there providing care to the masses.
0: So this was truly a, a a buyer beware type of environment where the the consumer really or the you know the patient or the person in need of care they, they really it's a, it's it's kind of going to be a grab bag. Would that be a fair way to kind of frame it? Absolutely,
1: yeah. There and and it was very much dependent on where you were. If yes. you were in you know Philadelphia or New York, you had some options. If you were out in rural America, you might only have that that one you know. Uh, practitioner of hydropathy who's gonna put you in a a cool bath and in some cases you know given the medical science at the time that wasn't necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. but uh you know it was there weren't a lot of options for people who were away from the cities and even if you were in the cities the options that were there were probably somewhat bewildering because you just don't know who to trust
0: yeah and then we also have to remember too uh, uh, uh I still, it's hard to wrap your, your mind around this. This is preceding Pasteur and germ theory. You guys talk about that yeah. in the article. We're not even washing our hands yet.
1: Correct. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. You know, and, and doctors, uh, uh, you know, Semmelweis, when he tried to push hand washing, uh, you know, a few decades prior to this, was ostracized by the medical profession. Yeah. They yeah. considered him uh, a heretic for accusing them of making people sick because of their you know, failure to wash hands.
0: So then clearly, when you guys open up the the wealth of literature, diaries, journals, things like that, that we're really fortunate to have in terms of primary sources from the Civil War, Jeff, when you start to dive into that, there's a lot to tease out. And clearly, there's going to be a sea change. So as you guys did your research, and you put the article together, in the article, you identify these, there's a couple of key things that you identify as the the really resonant changes in medicine. What are some of those? Kind of walk us through what you guys came up with as these are the really key things that when we look today, we can really see their impact.
2: Well, I think one of the first things we uh, decided to focus on was the role of uh, William Hammond, mm-hmm. uh, a a seminal figure who, uh, because he had the personality that he did, the experience that he did, uh, was a, a key figure in driving a lot of this change, as we, we point out in the article. Uh, so we hang a lot on, on, uh, Hammond, um, because we, we see him as a, as a very important figure. Now, a lot of this change was driven by, uh, individuals in the field, individuals who served Hammond, um, but he, he is a seminal figure, and we kind of came to a mutual agreement that not enough had been written about uh, Hammond to identify um, what he was able to accomplish and what he had the courage to to uh, to accomplish. Um, the the aspect of um, his calling on uh, officers in the field to collect specimens and uh, pieces of durable and medical equipment to to pass back uh, through the lines to establish this research collection. We also felt. Uh, it was a seminal decision uh, and a moment that um, enabled this uh, uh, change to take root not only in the day, but in subsequent decades. So that research collection, which, as we point out in the article, uh, still exists today in, in the collections of the National Museum of Health and Medicine, um, was, was a, a seminal moment in and of itself that drove fundamentally this evolution in medical thinking, Um uh, from that that period onward, so those are some of the things that we cover, and I'll defer to Ken on others.
1: I think you know the the approach that we took with this, Mark, uh, when Jeff and I sat down and started really thinking about uh, the the legacy of Civil War medicine, which is what the, the New England Journal of Medicine asked us to, to focus on. The the unique. Idea that that we really zeroed in on is something that uh, one of our our colleagues, a uh, woman uh, historian named Shauna Devine, has written about recently in a book called uh, Learning from the Wounded, and that is that the the innovations of the Civil War didn't just result in better practice of medicine or, or better. Uh, techniques or, or anything like that. It, it changed the way people thought about medicine at the most fundamental level, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not physicians for, for one thing. You know, there were over twelve thousand physicians working in the Union Army, about thirty five hundred in the Confederate Army. So they were exposed to uh, a, a very different way of practicing medicine and, and learning about medicine and thinking about medicine. But the the civilian population itself, because so many were impacted by and uh, involved in the war in different ways, when the war was over, everyone had a very different way of of looking at and thinking about medicine. So when you looked at, uh, for example, those those homeopathic physicians out there in, in rural America, suddenly you, you kind of saw them through a new set of eyes. Suddenly you're, you're kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, where's the science behind this? And that was something that wouldn't have been common in the general population prior to the war. So that was the biggest change, was just the way people of all walks, uh, both those in the medical profession and those outside of it, the way they perceived the practice of medicine really changed with the war.
0: One of the things about this article and the point that you've just made that is incredibly exciting and compelling to me is that, in my opinion, I'll be totally honest, I think that medicine in the Civil War is understudied at this point. There is a ton of material on, you know, primary sources, like I said, s- s- journals from surgeons, soldiers' recollections of the care that they received, but that sort of next generation interpretation and what were the ripple effects of it obviously there's been a lot of literature on the impact of the number of dead and how that impacted communities and things like that but those points that you just made about how much did this change society's expectations of the care that they should receive i I think that you guys are on to something with that and i think that uh that's incredibly exciting. In the article, you cite one of the earliest times that we use evidence-based medicine, where uh, Hammond talks about removing um, one of these. Uh, what, what was it? It was an it was an emetic. It was a, a combination tartar of tartar
1: emetic. Yeah, yeah. mercury-based medicines, basically calomel and tartar emetic,
0: basically yeah. given to soldiers to make to induce vomiting. Um, and you right. can imagine the the relevance of that in someone who has a gunshot wound is probably fairly sure. limited.
1: Well, and you know these were were medicines or medicaments, as as they were sometimes called, Mm -hmm. uh, that had been used for uh, generations, and so they they go back to a time of heroic medicine when something that you do for a patient has an effect, and that just the the mere cause of a, a, a something to happen to the patient is enough evidence to to a non-scientific observer to say well it's doing something so let's keep doing it it, mm-hmm. it must be must be helping so if you're making them vomit uncontrollably <laughs> well maybe they're getting the bad stuff out of their system and so that that kind of mentality persisted for so long prior to hammond mm-hmm. uh, you know and and we we credit hammond with a lot of this he wasn't the only one thinking this way of course but he was the one who was put into a position to really push the ideas. Yeah. Uh, and so when he came along and said, well, wait a minute, yeah, it's having an effect, but there's no evidence that this is a good effect. And when when he really started looking at the evidence and started taking a more scientific approach to it and, and reading the works of others who were you know, similarly taking a scientific approach, uh, it became clear that just making somebody vomit, you know, because they happen to have a fever is not necessarily helpful. Right. And so he removed those uh those medicines from the supply tables so that they were not uh they the physicians could still use them if they wanted to. They just couldn't order them through the army supply system. Uh He didn't Uh prohibit you know, that's that's a a common misunderstanding about Hammond as well, and something that uh the the doctors of the time kind of uh, criticized him for, especially the older ones who didn't accept the scientific approach. They they felt that he was prohibiting the use of calomel and Tartar Emetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. wasn't true. He didn't prohibit their use. He just said, no, you're not going to order them through the Army supply system.
0: I think that any physician uh, that's listening to that and hearing that right now and saying, wow, that's one of the earliest instances of a formulary being limited and me not being able to have access to a medication exactly, I want to use. That's
1: exactly what it was. And so, uh, you know, the impact was huge. Uh, if there was a negative impact for Hammond. He, you know, the there was, you know, there was a backlash. There were a lot mm-hmm. of very old traditional physicians who did not like having their formulary limited.
0: Sure, as these expectations change, the war evolves. The war subsequently ends. Obviously, the veterans of the Civil War went on to become the leaders of the United States, moving into the forward into the 19th century, into the Gilded Age, um, and and onward. Presidents, justices of the Supreme Court, did those. Expectations in your guys' research—did you find evidence that expectations of healthcare influenced subsequent decision making in the uh, in the period of reconstruction in the post-bellum time?
1: Well, I would say that yeah, it, it certainly did in a couple of ways. One is that um, things like hospital construction funding for those that that type of work would have been largely through charitable organizations, religious orders and things like that prior Mm -hmm. to the Civil War. The the value of hospitals and medical systems really uh, was evident to everybody through the experience of the Civil War. And so you find cities uh, willing to tax the population and, and raise revenue in order to build a hospital, in order to... Uh, staff, an ambulance crew, an ambulance system, um, you know, so you start to have those resources available throughout the country that wouldn't have been available and weren't available prior to the Civil War. They weren't available until it became evident that they, they there was enough value in that that politicians would push to say, you know we need money to to fund this type of uh, this type of resource.
0: Mhm, no, that makes sense. Jeff, one of the other things that you spoke about in this article, uh, in addition to this idea of expectation, was the the inculcation and the structuring of evacuation strategies, of triage, of moving the wounded, of moving large numbers of incapacitated people uh, from the battlefield to the rear and then subsequently to the rapidly developing care facilities that were being developed all along the eastern seaboard is that obviously that's a key piece as well that we see today. What was sort of the genesis of some of that and, and what are, where does, how far do those ripple effects go?
2: Well, the genesis of that was uh, really with major uh, Jonathan Letterman who implemented the system. But uh, again, it was Hammond who was in a position to empower uh, Letterman to, to move forward with these, these new ideas. I think, that uh, by later in the war, um, these systems were more in place than they had been previously. Um, and there had been a measurable difference in the evacuation time from the front lines. Uh, early in the war, soldiers would lay on the battlefield for days. Uh, later in the war, that was reduced significantly. And as we try to point out in the article, that this whole system of, of transport and triage has evolved Uh, over time into the 21st century. Uh, It's taken on new forms through advances in technology, uh, which have reduced uh, transport times from the front lines back to uh, home fronts. Um, And it continues to evolve. But the the fundamental roots
1: go back to the Letterman system uh, during the Civil War. And I I would also say, Mark, the, the other aspect of that is you were asking about evacuation, but hand in hand with evacuation is pre-hospital care. Yes, and that was something else that, again, at the beginning of the war, the the people who were evacuating wounded from the battlefield were maybe musicians or uh, soldiers who themselves were ill or wounded or something, and and couldn't they they were not not effective as war fighters, and so. They were put into a, a position, and, and in I guess a lot of cases also, uh, civilians who were contracted or, or just brought in for that purpose, but they had no medical training, no background at all in taking care of these men that they were evacuating from the battlefield. So a really huge part of what Letterman implemented was not just that echelon care and that ambulance system that, that forms the foundation of what we have today in you know ambulances around the country, but also a training regimen for those soldiers who were staffing those ambulances. They were actually getting, uh, some, some training and some experience, and they were, they, they knew their job. And so that, you know, you you can, you can see the obvious trajectory of that forward to today's paramedics who are out there saving lives, you know, across the the country's highways, pre-hospital, non, uh, physician, you know, pre-hospital caregivers who have uh, an extensive m- amount of training now that uh, wouldn't have even been conceivable prior to the Civil War.
0: Mm-hmm. And Ken, in an earlier part of your career, uh, you were an Army officer more than 25 years in the service, and uh, you were the director of the medical, eva- medical evacuation doctrine course um, at the U.S. Army School of Aviation Medicine. When you were doing that work, were you conscious of some of these things? Was this something that you said we are dipping into the past and we're just going to build on some of these central uh, protocols, these sort of central dogma as it were.
1: Yeah. That, that's an interesting uh, that you would ask that. Yes. When I was working uh, with the school of aviation medicine, my job was to train the medical evacuation pilots and crews for you know, the, the ongoing uh, military operations. And so, uh, Part of the course that I taught I have always like you I have always been uh, very interested in history even before I was a historian um, and so i I taught a a course on the history of medical evacuation uh, as it pertained to and built into the the system that we were all becoming a part of the, the students that I was training and so yes the uh, uh, the work of letterman and the the evolution of the ambulance crews and and the the path that it took through uh, to aeromedical evacuation, which is what I was teaching, uh, was was very much in my mind.
0: Hmm. And, and, Jeff, you've given talks at universities and seminars all over the world, any number of media uh, entities in the United States. What sort of things do they grab for? What sort of things do they find to be the most compelling when you're giving talks, particularly centered around you know the 19th century medicine, the Civil War experience – Uh, Which of these sort of key things that you guys talk about in the article do you think disseminate and resonate the most as you give these talks in other venues? Uh,
2: From my point of view, Mark, the the subject that resonates most deeply is the relationship between um, the provision of medical care with um, the voluntary sector as it emerged during this period. So my expertise lies not in the history of medicine in in a traditional way, but in the social and cultural history of medicine, how uh, medical knowledge uh, um, becomes pervasive in a society, how uh, individuals uh, understand uh, health and wellness on their own terms, uh, in terms of their families and their communities. And I'm very interested in that interplay between uh, medical systems uh, places of medical care, like hospitals, for example, and individuals and organizations in society that step forward for any number of reasons to, to help out or to supplement or complement the, the official care as it's given. So uh, in all these talks I've given, uh, one of the common themes is um, the role of uh, the voluntary sector, whether it's the, uh, um, the, the Sanitary Commission, in the Civil War uh, as one organization that that uh, uh, complemented uh, medical care and individuals who uh, kind of personified that volunteerism and the one person I've talked a lot about in my work is Walt Whitman the famous poet who yes. was a care provider and nurse in Washington DC hospitals and I've written mm-hmm. uh, other articles about about Whitman in cooperation with colleagues of mine formerly of the museum um, and this interest of mine this interplay between the medical uh, formally understood and, and the voluntary sector um, uh, has, has uh, informed a lot of my work related to World War I where I've looked at the roles of uh, the YMCA the Church Army and the Salvation Army in British contexts and how they worked with say the Royal Army Medical Corps and other uh, more formal uh, uh, providers of medical care to provide um, uh, not only medical care to wounded sick and wounded soldiers but um, to uh their families and and others uh, affected by by warfare, so you know the the common theme that i 've always talked about is that interplay between the the medical and the voluntary and uh, I found it very interesting and and it 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 has a human dimension it puts a face on war in a way that um, I think can very be very helpful and people can engage with it um at that level and I think in essence um, you know volunteerism. Is a, is a common theme throughout history, and I think everybody can relate to it in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and you can take it all the way up to today with the voluntary organizations, the nonprofit organizations that support uh, the, the uh, military branches in providing services to returning uh, soldiers, both men and women, uh, and their families uh, from from combat. So it's a, it resonates quite a bit,
0: and it's something I've talked a lot about. I think it's, it's just a perfect fusion. The two skill sets and the two sort of prisms that, that, that you gentlemen viewed the subject matter through, bringing those two things that you just spoke about together. I mean, that really informs this article. Uh, and it, 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 I don't know if that was serendipitous that the two of you decided to work on it and, and fuse those, but it, it just, it just sings. It works so perfectly. You, you touched a little bit just now on, on where we are today. And of course, as, as, you know, I was drummed into me as a history major history is is no good to us if we don't draw on it to uh learn from it and um build on on our world today from it so you you talked a little bit today about the the spirit of volunteerism uh obviously we always see things like that in periods of disaster or catastrophe where again we have to use these same strategies and protocols for evacuation but we also see a lot of people step forward to uh, sometimes even put themselves at risk, but to help those who have been affected, whether it's a natural disaster or time of war or something like that. I'll ask both of you, Jeff, you can go first, look into your crystal ball. And if you say, when this, when this same article is going to be written in 50, 100 years, what does the response that we've had to events in the 21st, this first part of the 21st century, the first two decades, we've had natural disasters, we've, uh, we've had uh, two different wars, we've had a number of, of, uh, mass casualty events, unfortunately, what will be the things that, what will be those common threads that can still go all the way back to the civil war, but that we've built upon what's going to be the key things that the writers in the future look at and say, they learned from this, they built on it. And here were the things that maybe they could have done differently.
2: Well, uh, whenever a historian is asked to speculate about the future, um, they tend to get very uncomfortable with that.
0: <laughs> um, I'm
2: not so uncomfortable. So uh, I'm not so uncomfortable because um, part of my job in being uh, in the federal government is to um, provide resources and information freely to those who are interested. And I, I think it's very important for us to make accessible the collections that we have to the public for whatever reason. So it's in that spirit I'll answer your question, and I'm happy to do it. I think there are two aspects. Uh, that will be written about in the future. Um, one of them is the fact that, as it has been in the past, those who step forward to volunteer, individuals and organizations, leave a uh, a record of the work that they've done. Uh, whether it's the uh, the official records of the uh, um, uh, Christian Commission. Uh, of the Civil War or the diaries and memoirs of those who serve that organization uh, during the past couple of decades here you know, we're living in the 21st century the digital age so the the documents of today are going to be blog posts they're going to be tweets they're going to be um, the what we call here at the National Library of Medicine and other libraries the born digital mm-hmm. so how historians of the future write the history of the first two decades of the 21st century is going to depend upon their access to these personal accounts of these disasters and how individuals have provided support in a variety of ways to those who've been afflicted by, by these, uh, these events, natural or, or man-made. Uh, and we're doing, a, I think, a, a good job here at the library to, to uh, record and preserve these personal accounts in a variety of ways so that the future historical record uh, can be uh, accessed, if you will, and interpreted in, in thoughtful ways. I think another aspect that will come out in uh, a future historical record is uh, the degree of uh, competition among and between nonprofit organizations that serve in a variety of ways uh, as they have over the past couple of decades. I mean, this has been a recurring theme in history. Um, nonprofit organizations exist um, for any number of humanitarian reasons uh, because of the spirit of volunteerism, but they also exist for legal reasons. And uh, they proliferate in our, in our society today for legal and, and financial reasons. And that's a good thing. I think that, that volunteerism, uh, as it's uh, framed by the plethora of organizations out there, is wonderful uh the states, the government can't do everything, so we need to rely on volunteerism. I think uh, the future of, of nonprofit organizations uh will have a chapter involving their competition. There are so many of them uh that that have overlapping uh well intentioned missions and the uh, the the their efforts need money to to operate. And I think there's a lot of uh, healthy competition among and, be- among and between nonprofit organizations um, that that uh, uh, cause them to be very successful, but also maybe inhibit some of their, their activities. Um, my former life was in the national nonprofit sector, so I have some direct experience in this regard. Uh, and I think the future record will, will document this quite well, and I think it's important that we do document that so... The future uh, of volunteerism in this country and around the world can can emerge in a way that's beneficial to the recipients of that that well-intentioned care, and that there's not undue competition that can hurt um, hurt those uh, that the sector serves to uh, to um, intends to serve. So, those are two two aspects I think are looking into my crystal ball that I yeah. think are going to happen. But I, I don't think that's disconnected from my role as a historian and the retrospective work that historians are primarily concerned about i think it's our job uh, to as i said provide information to help people look forward and to the degree to the degree that we are as historians comfortable with doing so i think it's incumbent upon us to to try to to look into those crystal balls so to speak
0: I think that those are absolutely fascinating takes, and and that issue of competition is is actually one that I hadn't thought of, and and I'm going to have to reflect on that a little bit. I think that uh, that is really, really interesting. Ken, I want to reframe the question for you just a tiny bit. Let's say it's going to be you. You've been an active historian for a long time, so – Several decades down the road, you're going to sit down to write your memoirs a la U.S. Grant. There's the famous picture of Grant sitting in the chair uh, in front of a cabin. You're going to sit down and write your memoirs and your reflections from a more personal level. When you, you've you already used a lot of lessons from the Civil War to uh, to build some of your own teaching and some of your own protocols – what are the some of the lessons that you're going to draw from how we've done things correctly, how we're, how we could do things differently and better when you sit down a couple of decades down the road, uh, to write for future generations?
1: Well, let me, let me start first by saying, I hope when I write my memoirs, I won't be on at, at death's door. Like uh, Grant was. You know, trying <laughs>
0: That's, to, right. That's fair. Grant I wasn't actually going to say that, but uh, no, you're absolutely so. right. That's fair.
1: <laughs> so, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I will I will venture down the the perilous path of futurism as a historian like uh, like Jeff did. I think when when I or other future historians look back, we I'm going to riff a little bit on what Jeff said. This is the digital age, the information age. Um, that that whole milieu, that environment, is going to really play into uh, events over the the coming decades and and when we look back, that's going to be a, a huge part of what makes up our history. And so I would think that things that, that will be happening in the coming decades that we'll look back at and say that was significant are ways that we share information, ways that, that we communicate with each other, and especially in times of, of uh Conflict, war, uh, disasters, things like that. When, when action was critical, when people had to step up and do something, having the ability to get information immediately is going to make a huge difference in in what actions people take. So, and I'll 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 take a little bit of the question that you asked Jeff too, and and take that backwards and to how it relates to the civil war you know the the origin of of this article and what we were talking about so i can see you know one potential future where uh there's an ability for first responders or even just uh observers who happen on a the scene of an incident whether this is something you know a wartime or or an act of terrorism or just a a catastrophe of some kind where people who are not well-trained to deal with those things are able to get the information that they need immediately to be successful in in handling those situations, you know, by contact, you know, reaching back to physicians like you. You might be sitting in a hospital in in San Diego and providing immediate care to, to people helping earthquake victims halfway around the world um and i i can see that happening in all you know any any number of scenarios you know soldiers on the battlefield reaching back to uh army doctors and and a, a medical center somewhere hundreds of miles away and getting the information that they need to to do work that right now would be impossible for an untrained uh uh aid to provide and how that relates back to the civil war then is That that is a a logical progression of the information sharing that Hammond was considering and thinking about when he started gathering information in the first place, when he started asking physicians in the field to send in their reports, to send in specimens, to send in materials that that could serve future generations. He certainly couldn't have envisioned the kind of information sharing that we have now but the idea of gathering information into one central place and making it available to people around the world and that that's what he was going for and that's that's how our library got its start as the surgeon general's library originally the army surgeon general's library where they were circulating materials from the library out to the field for for doctors to to learn and that the progression of that goes to you know, instantly sharing needed information and knowledge to people out there in the world who who have a, a hands-on emergency and they need that knowledge at that moment.
0: It's just so that's a, how I can see that playing out. I, I totally agree. You guys have both given me and I think all of our listeners quite a bit to reflect on. Um, these are issues that we're going to have to continue to kind of meditate over and, and think about because, again, it's how do we – The things that you guys have both identified are, I'm I'm thinking about it as we speak and, and it's, there, there's a lot there and there's a lot to sort of tease out. Um, this article is important, I think, for two reasons. Number one is it brings up some of these central themes and these central ideas that people may not have recognized that have such a huge role in their day to day practice. So I'm, I'm delighted that it's out there for that reason. But the other reason is for exactly what we were just talking about. This is a launching pad for this sort of a discussion of how are we doing things now and how is it going to ripple around and how is it going to continue to inform the future? So for that, thank you both very much for writing this piece. For those listening, if you want to find it, you can go to the New England Journal of Medicine website. It's at nejm.org. And the article, again, is History of Medicine, Combat and the Medical Mindset, the Enduring Effect of Civil War Medicine. How do our listeners find you guys? How do they find the National Library of Medicine? If they say, this is something I want to explore a little bit more, I want to get a little bit deeper into some of this, where do they they access you guys, uh, either on social media or on the Internet?
2: Well, the National Library of Medicine page um, is very easy to find, and um, you can contact us through through that site, uh, which is uh, nlm.nih.gov. And you can go from that page to um, the uh, History of Medicine uh, page, where we are located physically within the NLM. Uh, just look for uh, the History homepage off the main NLM website. And uh, we're here to serve and pleased to do so. And uh, we welcome uh, folks to explore our website and learn more about our uh, our historical collections that span uh, 10 centuries, and they're from... Uh, all parts of the world. So um, we've got a great collection, and we welcome people to to contact us for more
1: information uh, if they're interested. Let me also say, Mark, that uh, uh, some folks, if you if you're not uh, inclined to go to the website and dig up the uh, the scholarly work that's there, we have a blog that's uh, a lot of fun that uh, we we post several times a week. It's uh, called Circulating Now. And if anyone's not familiar with the blog, uh, you can just Google "circulating now" and uh, you'll find it. It's uh, uh, we get a, a wide range of articles on that blog uh, from authors both within and outside of our organization. Uh, all kinds of topics, and uh, we try to have a lot of fun with it. So uh, I think that uh, I've got the the URL for it here. Actually, it's circulatingnow.nlm.nih.gov. Uh, but yeah, again, if you just search uh, circulating now in your browser, I think it's uh, generally the first one that
0: comes up. I'm definitely going to dive into those. We'll send those out on the Twitter feed as well. Uh, Jeff and Ken, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, this has been just a fabulous conversation. Thank you for writing this article. Uh, it's an important piece. It came at a great time, uh, and it's just going to generate hopefully more and more wonderful conversation. But again, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast.